we're jumping into a series on Galatians. You can turn to Galatians with me, um, but I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into kind of this new summer series on the fruit of the Spirit. Father, we just uh, give you thanks. It's a difficult concept for us to wrestle with your love, that it's full, that it's absolute, that it's, it's based on grace, not on merit, that you actually do care about us, that you pursue us, that you continue to pursue us even when we fail, that in our imperfection, your love um, is made perfect simply because of our faith in your son and in what you've been doing with this plan of redemption, that somehow you've arranged for all of it. It's, it's an awkward, beautiful reality that we get to behold your grace, that we get to stand in your presence, that we get to know your love. And so we want to talk about this this morning. Father, we want you to open our eyes, open our hearts, and, and allow us to feel, to know, to understand that you really truly do love us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the fruit of the Spirit, um, it's, it's a passage in a book. Passage in a book. The book is Galatians. In the New Testament, which would be the, the books of the Bible written after Jesus, located in the broader uh, scriptures, the Bible as a whole. And so it has context to it. Um, this fruit of the Spirit or these individual aspects, love, joy, peace, patience, these individual things are, are set always in a broader, more full context. And we have to see them in the fullness of that context to really understand them or understand them the way God wanted us to understand them. And I, I really believe one of the things we have to get back to as a church in America and as a church at Antioch is being people of the book, being people of the Bible, um, and being biblically literate. That we know the story, we know our story, we know the author of that story, we know the context of that story, because for far too long we've just been talking aphorisms or motivational quotes or inspirational bits in churches in America. And when, when all we do kind of on Sunday mornings is talk about inspirational bits as if it's John Wooden or Mark Twain or Benjamin Franklin and you can just swap it out, but they're all wonderful life application principles and nuggets, then, then we really don't have any kind of anchor or, or we're not rooted into the Christian faith at all. In fact, if Christianity gets hard or uh, unpalatable in some ways, then we kind of just slide very naturally and easily away from kind of Christian aphorisms into whatever it is the culture would have for us. Um, Dr. Oz or, or Wayne uh, Dwyer or whatever the kind of wisdom people of our day are. Is that even, I'm not even getting it right, um, the names. But we can just swap kind of in and out of that and we can continue to be spiritual. And, and nothing will change. And what we're talking about with Christianity is not being spiritual or having these wonderful life application principles, although those are great, but, but seeing where all of that comes from and that somehow that stuff is animated by, has power or life force by the fact that we're in Christ. That being in Christ, 
we're made alive, that it actually bears fruit in our life. And that's really what this passage is talking about. It's, it's this fascinating thing where Paul is saying in the book of Galatians that, hey, the law, this idea that you're supposed to follow this law, all of these legal precepts, and that somehow your perf- uh, perfectness or your righteousness in doing that is gonna appease the gods, so to speak. Paul is saying, look, that's the Old Testament and it existed not that we could ever appease the gods by following the law, but it existed to show us that we could never attain to the fullness of that standard of righteousness. Yet God has a plan anyways. And God is gonna take the standard and the need for the law to be fulfilled on himself and he's going to save us. He's going to accept us. We're gonna be found pleasing in God's sight by his grace and his love. So we go from law to love. Law that we can never meet, law that is harsh, law that is all about God exalted and it continually pushes us away and shows us our distance to to love which is all about relationship and closeness and bearing imperfections. And Paul is saying, you religious people that are going into these communities like Antioch and these other churches, uh, Antioch, the original Antioch in the New Testament period, and you're telling these Gentile uh, converts, these people that are new to the faith, that, hey, you have to follow the law first, and then you can be a Christian. Then you can follow the Messiah. He's saying, you guys are, are actually twisting the good news You're messing it up for these people and you're bringing them back to where they're slaves again to the law. But the law and and Jesus coming to meet that has set us free and we are now free in Christ. And so right before we get to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul is just telling people, you've been set free. So don't use your your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but stand firm and use it to serve one another. There's this beautiful thing, God's grace is love, has set you free. And for freedom's sake, then, stand. And he's saying, so now, when you come to this relationship with God, it's, it really is this amazing thing where you're tapping into a source of power. And so very much like Jesus, when he says, I am the vine, you're the branches, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you're in me, you will bear much fruit. That You can't even help it. The proximity that, that intersection of my life force and you is gonna change you. It's gonna bear fruit. You can't even stop it. It's, it's just gonna come out naturally. Paul is very much saying the same thing. Now, as you live by the Spirit, this is what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna grow fruit. It's gonna begin to manifest in your life. It's gonna be a, a seasoning to you, a quality, a a beauty that's going to come out of you, a harmony. It's going to be these virtues in this character and it's going to begin to emanate from you because you're being radically remade in the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the context of the book of Galatians. And so when we get to the fruit of the Spirit, it's in chapter five and it's all the way at the end and it's coming off of don't live like you used to live and it starts in chapter five, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I just want to stop there and let it awkwardly hang. We're not going to read the rest of them today. But the first thing that's going to come from being connected to the Spirit is love. I want to back you up just one chapter or two chapters, three chapters to chapter two uh, and put on the screen for you here in Galatians chapter two, verse 15. 
And this is the heart of the message that Paul is talking about. Chapter 2, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. I'll read through the end of the chapter myself, even though it's not on the screen. It says this, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, I came to know Christ, but I still, I still am a sinner and I still do wrong things. Does that mean that that's, that's what Jesus is here to promote? Absolutely not. If I re- rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For, the, uh, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. To me, this is the hallmark verse, not only of Galatians, possibly of the whole New Testament. It was through his study of Galatians and the book of Romans that, uh, that Martin Luther in the 1500s came to radically see salvation in a New Testament context against what was being taught by the medieval Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church of today is different than the, the Catholic Church of the 1500s. We have to, to see that and allow for that. But during uh, Luther's day, what was being taught was coming off of the Latin Vulgate and being spoken in a language that people couldn't even understand. And over a long period of time, what they came to understand about their relationship with God is so radically different than this life of faith that we see in the New Testament when we read it. And so Martin Luther, being able to read it in the original languages that had just kind of come about, Erasmus's Greek New Testament had just been published. And so Luther, studying Galatians and Romans in 1517, began to challenge the Catholic Church, and it's the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But this chunk I just read for you is, is really the backbone. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am connected vitally, not just to Christian living principles or aphorisms, but to my Savior. I'm connected to a source of power, someone in his love who wants to reshape me and transform me more and more to God's vision of of what God uh, desired for his creation men, women, families, communities. And it's, a, it's an incredible, incredible thing. Now, this is radically different. Why? Because like I said, the view easily could have been um, that basically we do the law to appease the gods. Now, I want to pull back and look at, um, before we do that, the first John 4, let's just put that on the screen. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. And this is what we find to be the character of God. 1 John 4, 8, uh, John the Apostle writes, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So God is his essence, his existence. There's never a time when you can separate out God's presence from love. Those two things are co-synonymous. They're equal. Wherever God is, love is too. And wherever love is, 
um, godly love, biblical love, God is there in that as well. Those two things are inseparable. It's a part of God's character. And so the, the very logical thing is being said here by John that if you don't know love, then you can't know God because if you knew God, you'd be standing in the presence of and, and be in awe of and be being transformed by love. So if you don't know love, you don't know God. God is love. Now this is a radically different view of God in the ancient Near East. So we, I don't think, balk at this. This isn't that crazy for us because we're in a culture that has been, that has been influenced by 2,000 years of Christianity. Does that make sense? We don't stand in, in the, the seat of the audience of John or Paul in first century Palestine, we stand here in Bend, Oregon, 2015, after 2,000 years of Christian teaching. So the idea that God is love is a very familiar one with us, whether we understand it or not, whether we accept it or not, this idea that the Christian God is love is something we're very familiar with. Is that fair? Okay. If you back it up, is that fair? Okay. If you back it up 2,000 years, so we're now in the first century. What is the context of saying that God is love? You're in the Greco-Roman world. You had the Greek gods uh, and the myths leading up to the time of Christ. The Romans, very non-creative people, uh, just took the Greek gods and renamed them. So Poseidon became Neptune, the god of the sea. They just took the Greek gods and kind of renamed them. Um, and then they had the, the cult of kind of emperor worship. But this is the context of first century, uh, the ancient Near East kind of uh, leading up to Christ. And I want to explain the gods of that day so that you can see the difference between the Christian God here. Now, the ancient gods uh, were very much, there was many of them, and they were very much born out of the experience of people. So we start with our understanding of ourselves and our life context and we project onto the gods, so to speak. So um, the Norse god uh, Thor is a god who carries a hammer because the hammer is connected to the thunder that we hear in the sky. And thunder always goes with the rains in those countries. And the rains are what's needed for fertility and for things to grow and the cycle of life to happen so that people can survive. And so Thor swinging his hammer makes the thunder. Uh, actually, the word uh, in, in Norse uh, for thunder is Thorden. Uh, Thorden means Thor's roar. So, so the the word um, for, for thunder actually is built around the god Thor. And so you've got this guy with the hammer who's making the thunder. If he throws the hammer, it'll come back to his hand like a boomerang. And you have this interesting thing that out of our experience of needing fertility, that we're looking up and saying, who's in control of that? How would that look? He must have a hammer to make that kind of noise. And that's gonna be the God that governs that. Now, because we're projecting upwards, it's also as we begin to do the, the mythology, so Norse, uh, uh, Norse mythology, there, there's a lot of, of sexual things going on with those gods. Because when men of power in that culture 
uh, had, had all sorts of power. There was a lot of, of sexual license that comes into power. And so gods that have power, the stories that must be going on have to involve a lot of sexual proclivity. Uh, or when there's no rain, where did Thor go? Or where did his hammer go? And so some of the Norse myths uh, are how Thor's hammer gets stolen. And in order to uh, get it back, he has to dress up like a bride and, and hide in costume and go into the underworld and then surprise people, get his, his hammer back, kill everyone, come back. But it's like, why, where is Thor gone? Because there's no, there's no thunder. So if, if Thor's gone or if his hammer's gone, we're going to build a story around that. But this is kind of this projection idea of, of the gods of antiquity. If you also look at the sacrifice idea, it's how do we appease the gods through sacrifice? And so even the Norse god uh, Odin used to have uh, live sacrifices made to him. We're actually going to sacrifice human people in some sense to pay a debt uh, or to satisfy or appease the gods here. Um, so the god Odin. If you study Mayan civilization, the, the Mayans very similarly uh, actually did human sacrifice and it was all this idea of appeasing the gods that were in control of the cycles that brought fertility and allowed for things to grow and to happen in that kind of a way does that make sense so the greco-roman gods as you have more of an artistic culture begin in greece um, to represent the gods they represent them in a very sexualized way so so we're we're looking at the gods this way and when we're going to talk about love with the gods, that love is going to be more tied to sex than it is going to be to paternal love or maternal love. Um, as the gods are kind of doing their own soap opera in the sky. I've got a picture of Neptune. Um, this is the fountains and that's, well, we'll start with, we'll start with Zeus. So this is, a, this is a bronze statue from about 500 BC, really early Greek culture. And you get this, it was found in a shipwreck at the bottom of the ocean. And you've got this idea of Zeus, but he's represented naked. He's represented as a, a man, as a sexual being. And, and you kind of begin to get this idea of it. Go to the next slide. <clears throat> this is the fountain in the Plaza della Signoria, right there in the heart of Florence. Um, and uh, you see again, uh, this is Neptune. So in Greek, it would have been Poseidon. But he's represented there in power with, with different um, things rimming the edge of the fountain. He's naked. He's, he's, he's fully sexualized. But this is a God that, that we're looking at and worshiping as one of the pantheon, one of the many gods that controls various aspects of life. Uh, if you go to the next slide, this is um, probably one of the most famous statues in the Vatican Museums. It's a very old statue of the Lycoon. It's a story of, of how a priest of Neptune uh, was going to warn, uh, the, uh, warn the Greeks about uh, the Trojan horse. And so Neptune sent the serpent to kill him and his sons. So this is the, the priest, uh, this is the Laocoon story. And again, very human interaction with the gods, very sexualized again. By the way, the telling of this story in Virgil and his uh, Aeneid, um, kind of the writings of Virgil, 
is where we get the phrase, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, is in the telling of this story right here, that, that this priest was trying to tell people, be, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And so, again, if you walk through the Vatican or any of the places where you see the Greco-Roman art world coming to be, you see representations of the gods interacting in a very human way, and love, if you will, is going to be a, a very sexualized, very human kind of kind of thing. And it's also why Greco-Roman art passed from uh, the art world really until the Renaissance. It began to slowly go out of fashion for two reasons. One, uh, as Christianity became the normalized religion, the Greek and the Roman gods weren't represented anymore. But secondly, the idea of sexualized gods or, or even uh, fully exposed um, sexual art like this to the Christian sensibility all through the uh, Middle Ages was not something that fit into the, their, their worldview. And so statuary, the making of statues, was more for stone and to go into little fittings on uh, cathedrals and chapels. So basically, to rim the outside of stone cathedrals, we would put fully robed um, individuals kind of lining it in different kind of artistic ways, usually telling a parable, one of the parables of the Bible, or an artistic story. So it wasn't till Donatello, and so this is the next statue, this is Donatello's David, and it's about what a boy would have been in that, uh, that time period. So this is the 1400s in Florence, and why did the Renaissance happen? Um, a couple things. The rebirth of the writings of ancient Greco-Roman world from Constantinople as it was being uh, attacked by the Turks. You had the learning and kind of the Greek manuscripts going uh, west and, and kind of bringing about this new intellectual fervor uh, in um, Western Europe. You also saw the, the rediscovery uh, under the Medici patronage, so the Medici, the rich banking family that ruled much of um, the Renaissance period, uh, began to invest heavy money into the arts. So instead of the church paying for art, which was always going to be tied to religion, you now have people building schools and paying for art that's a bit set free for it, but usually still having those same themes. So the fascinating thing about the Renaissance was you basically went from zero to 60. There was no in-between, really, of all of a sudden jumping back into this ancient art form of, of nudes and, and sexualized beings and kind of this humanistic kind of take on it. So this was the shocking thing that, that at least in statues, many people mark as, as the beginning of the Renaissance, uh, either that um, or the birth of Venus, the painting, uh, would be seen as kind of the transitionary form if you look at painting. But so this then goes to Michelangelo's version of God, and we'll, we'll stop the little art history there. But so then this is the painting that Michelangelo puts in the top of the Sistine Chapel. And it's one of many panels. Um, this picture of God, for most people in, in Western civilization, is our mental image of God. Why? Because... In Christian art, we never depicted God. This really was, uh, for all intents and purposes, not only the most recognizable representation of God, but, but one of the only representations of God that give us a picture. And you notice Adam there in the nude being animated by God's spirit, but, but you see even, even with Michelangelo, 
the separation of the two. Thomas Cahill, the, the historian, will say that there's never, you know, I'm just going to put it crassly, but, but the Christian God is never known from the waist down. He's never known from the waist down. Why is that significant? We don't treat the Christian God in terms of sexualized love because that's not the way he's revealed himself. So instead of projecting forward onto the gods, we can take it off that slide. But I want to I wrap this together for you now that we have in these, these kind of mythological tellings of the gods this projecting forward of our own human situation to, to what the gods must want and what will appease them. And those gods, if they have any kind of love, looks a lot like the rulers and the powers that, that are ruling over people. And that means they have kind of a very uh, sexualized understanding of love. Those are the two things we kind of get. In the revelation of God to us, however, we see a very different story. In Isaiah, if you want to turn there, we see this. In Isaiah, beginning in verse 11, God declares, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 11, God declares, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. In other words, you're not feeding me. Like, I don't need you to feed me. Like, you're not bringing me something I need. And not only when you're doing these sacrifices do I not need it, but I'm actually not even appeased by it. Like, that sense of sacrifice you're doing, even in a symbolic sense, is not appeasing me. Why is it not appeasing me? When you come to appear before me, uh, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, stop bringing meaningless offerings your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot, cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer me many prayers, I will not listen. I'm not even going to listen to what you're, you're saying to me. You can't find me, God's saying. Your hands are full of blood. Wash, however, and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then we get this great kind of prophecy forward to salvation. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. All right, so what's going on here? The Greek gods, Thor with his hammer. Um, by the way, Zeus with his lightning bolt, the same kind of a god that governs the rains and the clouds and fertility, the powerful god, um, the god that thunders and roars, that, that we're, not, we're not dealing with somebody that's, that we're kind of manipulating we're not dealing with somebody that wants us to kind of do symbolic gestures. We're not dealing with somebody that needs anything from us. Rather, when God speaks, he says, you stop acting different than the nature of my own character. You leaders, those in power over people, don't think the gods are like you. 
Don't think they use people. Don't think that they trample people. Don't think that they have a sexualized version or understanding of love. Rather, this, my version of love, my desire for the world is that you would do right and that you would seek justice, that reconciliation would be the order of the day and that the poor people or the vulnerable people, the powerless, that you would use your power to take care of them. I don't just serve your needs, you who are in power, and bring you rain so that you can have more crops and more wealth. I serve also, and in some sense, with greater preference, the needs of the powerless and the vulnerable. I serve them. And so if you want to be right with me, you have to first understand the nature of my character and what it is I desire. That's a revolutionary understanding of love. This is in the Old Testament, Isaiah prophesying. As we go forward, we see Jesus come. And uh, if we look at um, John 15, right on the heels of that passage of the vine and the branches that I was talking about, right on the heels of that, Jesus says this, my command is that you would love each other as I have loved you. In verse 13, John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now you are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name and this is my command that you love each other so god comes down in in this humble position uh the greek world uh the greeks and the romans it was all about fame and glory and power eternal life when you go back to the greek writings was really cashed out in fame if your name goes on forever you are eternal if you, if you win greatness, you have become immortalized and, and eternal. It's a very power and glory-driven understanding um, of, of eternal life and what people are going for. And so this is the Greek and the Roman ideal. And that's why until it wasn't like the third or the fourth century that Christians even began to use the crucifix. Because up until that time, it was this, this object of shame. The cross is this object of shame. It's where criminals... And people that don't have power go to die. It's where the people of power take and put the people that they're oppressing. It's this position of weakness. And it took the Christian church a long time before they actually held up the cross or the crucifixion and said, no, this is actually a, a thing of, of honor. Because what Jesus was doing was so radical and he's coming in weakness as a child to a peasant family born of a virgin and he comes and he walks with fishermen and he begins to, to teach them the, the desires of the Father. He's not giving them commands. He's saying, I'm letting you in on the story, the context of the fruit of the Spirit, the context of Galatians, the context of the New Testament, the context of the Bible as a whole. I'm letting you in on this story, and it's a story of love. And the kind of love it is isn't a sexualized love that uses and abuses power. It's, it's rather a self-giving love that sacrifices for another person that I care so much about you, even though you don't deserve it that I would actually 
subsume myself underneath you. I would go to the grave for you that you could continue on, that you could have health, that you could flourish. It's the love of a parent. It's paternal and maternal love that says, I will suffer to know that your well-being has been established. This, this love is so radically different than the realms of the gods that we have in antiquity. It, it's, and it didn't just begin with Jesus. David singing this song, the Lord is my shepherd. Intimate and personal, I shall not want. He cares for me. He knows my name. He bandages me up. He anoints my head with oil so that I won't be the victim of pestilence. If I get turned over, in other words, literally sheep are top heavy. If they get turned over, their, their legs flail around. They can actually die that way. And, and you have to, to right them. And David is talking as a shepherd and saying, this is, this is what the Lord does for me. He sets me up right side and he leads me in the right paths and he takes me to the streams of living water again water that flows too fast can cost a sheep its life the right waters that aren't brackish that aren't bad he takes me there so I can flourish he serves me so this idea of this serving sacrificial love is this idea of the context of scripture working its way out I care about the weak I care about the oppressed seek what is right do justice make things flourish and if you have to give your life for that do it because you're never closer to God than when you understand and live out that type that type of godly love so when we are standing in this position Paul wrote he's one of the few apostles that, that probably could write in Greek himself many of the other apostles would have had a translator um, potentially they spoke Aramaic Paul possibly or probably wrote or could write in Greek himself he is writing about this agape love not this sexualized love he's writing about this agape love in his own hand to a Greek audience or an audience that certainly speaks the Greek language the Hellenistic culture that abounds in that day that as they walk through Rome they're seeing the statues the naked statues that are honoring these gods and Paul is writing and saying I'm telling you the story just like Jesus told his apostles the stories you guys are friends you're being let in on this you've been set free to be with God you don't have to appease him anymore it's not about sacrifices anymore it's not about a capricious God anymore it's not about a God that needs something from you. It's about a God who is powerful, who has a, a will for your life, who has called you unto himself, set you free by his love, by his grace. And now as you walk with him, as you fellowship with God, as the Holy Spirit is a part of your life, you will begin to be transformed to say, there's a different kind of living here. There's a different kind of character. There's a different kind of nature and, and it's one that only comes by faith. Um, so here's the kicker as I pivot for you. Um, application. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Application. Uh, a cheap, thin application would be this. Go and love people more. Go and be more loving. Go love greater, wider, farther, deeper. Um, and that's not really the application here. 
The application isn't that, that we have in us the power to do the very illogical, counterintuitive thing, which is to die to self so that others may live. I don't know about you, but when I wake up every morning, I'm very far from that place. And I have to try to pray myself into that place. Okay, I, I can't just go do what doesn't come natural to me, which is to care more about you than I care for myself. So for me to tell you just to go be more and do more of that is where Christian duty and guilt comes from. Does that make sense? There's a guy I saw walking on the streets yesterday. It's good to be back in Bend. There's a guy I saw walking on the street yesterday. He had a t-shirt. This guy was in his 50s and it had two hands. It had a hand right here with the middle finger up and then it had a hand right here with a pointer finger pointing out. I took the t-shirt to mean F you is what I took it to mean. Um, I don't speak sign language. But I, and I looked at that guy and I was like what if I went to him and just said hey man you need to love people more all this bitterness all this againstness all this whatever it's just not in the northwest spirit um, you know you need to love people more I guarantee you he has a defense mechanism for that already doesn't he he's not going to hear me and even if he heard me does he have the power of the Holy Spirit really working to, to bear that fruit of love? May, maybe it's beginning, whatever, but, but only that work of the Holy Spirit is going to ultimately take that individual to where they get a, a, a t-shirt that says, I don't know, what's a, what's a, I don't know what a love t-shirt is. I love that I love man, but maybe, maybe someone can sign a love t-shirt, but to get him out of that shirt into another shirt is, is not going to come by people preaching at him, is it? For me to love people better isn't going to come um, from someone preaching at me. So the application here isn't go be more loving. The application here, I would give you three things. The first one is this. Um, seek forgiveness. First John tells us that God is so anxious and ready to forgive us when we confess our sins. Why? Why does God need us to say it? If he's going to forgive us, why doesn't he just do it? Why do we got to say it? Why do we got to confess it? Um, it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with us. Until we actually can verbalize that we did something wrong or we've been being wrong, we can't really reconcile, can we? It's really about our own hearts to say, I'm, I'm willing to, to bear the shame and to be humbled enough to say, God, I got it wrong. I did it wrong. I've been living wrong. Um, and then to feel that awkward thing of grace where God says, okay, I forgive you. Well, I, I promise I'll be miserable the rest of the week because that'll pay back some of, you know, by me not being happy, it'll, it'll pay back some of what I did, God. No, 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 that's not, that's not what I want. Like, you don't have to appease me. I don't want your gloominess. There's too many gloomy Christians already. Like, I, I'm not asking you to earn my forgiveness. I'm not asking you to flay yourself or punish yourself. I'm not asking you, now go make amends, sure, if you've got a broken relationship with someone else. But I want you to know the awkwardness of my grace and my love. That you just want to squirm. It's like, man, it's awkward. I'm naked. And pretty soon, okay, God, if that's what it's like, 
thank you. It's pretty amazing. And oh, by the way, I'm acclimating to it now, which is bringing a lot of joy. I don't want to sin again and then start that process over. I'd rather just walk with you and know the joy part of that fellowship. So application. Ask forgiveness. Start the process of being close with God. Start the uh, process of walking naked with a clear conscience with God. Second thing is time. We gotta spend time in the love of God. We We gotta spend time in scripture where God speaks to us. We gotta spend time in community where people remind us what grace looks like. We gotta spend time in prayer, not always just giving our lists, but just listening, time in solitude where the Holy Spirit can work with us, say things to us, show us things, interact with us, commune, guide us. And, and in that love and in that position, let the power of the Holy Spirit begin to change us and, and reshape our hearts. So we ask forgiveness. We have to spend time in the love of God. Love is this fascinating thing. It's a lot like air. We cannot live without it. It's, it's something that, frankly, we're wired to need for, for, for flourishing at all times throughout the day. We're very familiar with love, just like we are air. But when was the last time you thought about air? I mean, it's, it's too familiar. So we, we just, we live our life here, and we don't ever put air in front of us as the object of focus. What I'm talking about here and spending time with God by putting God in, in our focus, we're basically also putting love in our focus. We're, we're putting it right there where we can be transformed by it, by, to see it, to think it through, to, to be challenged by it. When you spend time with anyone, you begin to mimic their behavior. Now, it's been a long time since I spent time with John Lemke, my friend John Lemke. A lot of you know John Lemke. Uh, we once spent a lot of time together. We traveled Europe together back in... 2006, um, I picked up a lot of John Lemke-isms when I was with John. Now, John's a bit of a legend here because he's a very interesting guy. So I talk about John a lot. Um, A lot of us will make John jokes. Um, There's a big difference between John being a very familiar concept and me spending time with John. And I have never been uh, changed or transformed or begun to mimic John by talking about John or jokes about John, or letting John be a part of our kind of group fun thing that we, we have in common. It's only when I spend time that I begin to mimic behavior. And too many Christians, too many of us, Christianity just becomes so much a part of what we talk about, what we have in common, but we don't actually spend time in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. God is love. To spend time with God is to slowly be transformed to be more like him in our love. Ask forgiveness, quality time, spend time with God, walk with the Holy Spirit. The third thing is, is simply this. It's learn the discipline of thanksgiving. Learn the discipline of thanksgiving. I think we have the hardest time with God's love because we don't spend time looking for the ways he's loving us. God has a love language just like we do. Um, He has a robust way of loving us. And we're always looking for the answer to our prayers. God, I gave you three requests. There's been no movement. I don't feel your love. 
So we demand of God a certain performance for us to see or acknowledge his love. But God loves us by speaking to us. God loves us by comforting us. God loves us by bringing people into our life that we need. God loves us sometimes by not giving us what we ask that that, that are not really the right things to be asking for. God loves us by steering us. God loves us by disciplining us. God loves us by forgiving us. God loves us by changing us. God loves us by opening our eyes to see wondrous and beautiful things that we might not have been seeing before. The sunsets or the birds that sing or whatever it might be to realize that somehow in all this, beauty still reigns. And so I think the last thing, if we really want to bathe ourselves in the love of God, we need to become uh, become attentive to the ways in which God is speaking love to us, which really means taking notice of the good things that God is doing, the discipline of thanksgiving, the discipline of gratitude. So forgiveness, which goes with grace. Relationship, which really has a lot to do with proximity. Gratitude, which goes with the discipline of thanksgiving. That these things somehow have to become a part of our life, that God's power might work in us that we might bear this fruit, uh, the first of which, the, the first aspect of which is this agape, very non-human, very divine kind of love. Let's close in prayer. Father, maybe we're not aware of how radical our faith is, how different you are from the gods we would make in our own image how different your kind of love is from the kind of love that our society talks about or, or mimics. That your will for this, this world is, is far simpler and deeper than maybe the lists of things we ask you, ask you for. And that somehow your love, if it really pervaded our lives, if it, per, if it pervaded our community, would change the whole tenor and the feel Uh, of this church, of this city, that it would certainly change the air about us, that we would be a light on a hill, that people would be drawn to us. We hunger for that. We thirst for that. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, for being right with you, for knowing your love, being transformed by your love. We love because you first loved us. The love of Christ compels us. It begins with you. May we seek you, Father, in Christ's name.